following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Amen. Amen. Thank you, choir. Powerful song. Powerful song about God's glory. And believe it or not, you know, Easter will be here in what, four weeks? I think three weeks from today. It will be Easter. How about that? And uh, that is where God was glorified for you and I the absolute most because he expressed his love. He uh, became one of us, as you know, and he died. And we could look at the cross with him hanging upon it and know the depth of God's love for you and I, that he would be willing to do that. So we praise him today for that, and we're beginning our... uh, our trip our, on the road to Easter here at Welford Baptist Church today. And speaking of Easter, I want to encourage you strongly, all right? Uh, Easter is the Sunday in which more people are willing to come to church if invited. Isn't that something? Christmas and Easter are the highest days. Easter is really easier for someone to accept your invitation than Christmas is. So I want you to pray. You may already know someone, but pray if you don't who God would have you to invite to to Welford Baptist Church on Easter Sunday morning. You know, it would be wonderful to have the church filled, but even more so than that, those who are just out of church, those who are not in the faith, whatever it may be you're concerned about, you've been praying for them for a while, or God just put someone on your heart and mind, would you invite them? This means yes, and this means no, okay? Would you invite them? Let's say yes, all right? Thank you. So I'm going to look forward to all kind of new faces here Easter Sunday morning. And with that being said, we're on the road to Easter, as I said. We're going to be traveling with a few of the disciples in, uh, in Jesus' group. Uh, we, we don't have 12 weeks out, so we're just going to take four, four disciples. We're going to look at Matthew and Thomas, and Peter, and today we're going to look at uh, Judas, all right? And uh, we're going to look at unbelief with Jesus at Easter time. And all the pictures and paintings I've ever seen of Judas, he's a little old scrawny kind of guy, big old hook nose, big bushy eyebrows that make his eyes look dark, that kind of thing, you know. But then I ran across this one. This was uh, painted by an Italian painter back in the 1700s. I couldn't pronounce his name, so I'm not going to try, okay? But uh, this is how he portrayed Judas. And really, I got to looking at it, and I thought, you know, really, I think he could just, he looked like us, you know? There wasn't anything distinguishing him from anyone else. It was his heart that distinguished him. Has anyone ever betrayed you? Hmm? Anyone ever just really zapped you, so to speak? Maybe you've known them for a long time. Maybe it was someone you really loved. And somehow or another, they betrayed you. Someone you trusted. Someone you thought you knew and who really knew you. And out of nowhere, this person turns against you. And suddenly they become your enemy. You never saw it coming. You don't know if you're more hurt or if you're more angry about the situation. 
a story I would hear just ever so often. It wasn't mentioned much as I was growing up in my family. I was born in, in Greenville, and we lived in the San Susi area for my first three years. Dad was a traveling hardware salesman for a Sullivan Hardware Company. I would imagine a few of you in here would remember that company. But then I guess he saved up enough money, and he had a dream. He wanted his own store, and an opportunity came up in Liberty. And he was able to come and to rent a building there on Commerce Street, which is the main street in Liberty. He was right in the center of town. You know, when you hear about location, 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 you don't get any better than that. And Liberty back in the day, you know, on Saturdays, man, it was absolutely packed. You had to ride around looking for a parking place. The sidewalks were full. The stores were full. This was pre-Kmart and Walmart and the mall and all that. So everybody was in town. And Dad uh, opened up his store, Foster Painting Hardware Company, and uh, did really well. And then about two years later, the man who was renting the store to my father, he said, uh, I decided I'm going to open up a hardware store. You need to get out in 30 days. I want you out. You will be out in 30 days. I don't know if that was legal or not to give him 30 days and all the nuts and bolts and nails and everything else in the hardware store, he had to get out. Plus, he had to find some place to go. And he had a friend. Dad had a friend that we lived close to on Highway 93 coming into Liberty who ran T.E. Jones and Son Furniture Company on Front Street. And he had a building, that a part of his building, that he was willing to rent to my father. It was across the street from the beer joint next door to the liquor store. We knew about everybody in Liberty then. But Dad, uh, he rented that store. Again, God blessed him. And a few years later, he built his own store, his own building, just a few yards away down the street from where he was renting one. And God blessed him. And all things turned out for good. But still... I know there was a hurt and some anger in his heart over what had occurred to him because whenever it was mentioned, you could just tell just by the tone of his voice here. Well, you probably know the story of Judas, don't you? He's the only one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus who we do not name our sons after. I know Andrews. I know Thomas's, I know Matthew's, I know John's, my brother-in-law is John, but I can't say I've ever met anybody named Judas. Have you? Anybody? How about those up there closer to heaven, y'all? No. His name has gone down in history as a synonym, I think, for the very worst of, of man. He leveraged his close personal relationship with Jesus in order to deliver him over to the authorities. And once he, once he was arrested, Jesus was tried, he was convicted, he was executed, and he died. And for us, it turned out amazingly well, didn't it? Because through his death, we have salvation and we have a home in heaven through belief in him, through his death and his resurrection. 
But for Judas, it turned out to be a pretty terrible ending for him. He committed suicide. So Judas is the only disciple who ever missed Easter. So now I'd like to read to you the the scripture that we're going to be based on this morning. And I did have it scattered throughout the sermon, but I brought it back together. All right, Matthew 26, and we're going to look at the first 16 verses. And as you're turning there, let me share with you, Jesus has already come to Jerusalem for the last time in his earthly life. And I'm thinking from what I can get out of the story, reading along, he's teaching in the temple, and he's giving prophecies about when he's going to return in the last days and all of that. And then uh, he, it's probably Wednesday when he's speaking here. And this is what he says. Giving a lot of different stories and parables. And when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, and you know that after two days, the Passover, the festival of Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people met together in the palace of the high priest who was named Caiaphas. They planned to arrest Jesus by stealth, secretly, and to kill him. And they said, let's don't do it during the feast so that there won't be a riot among the people. And then Matthew gives us this story. Now, while Jesus was in Bethany, and this is just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, just a few hours' walk, while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of expensive perfumed oil, and she poured it on the head of Jesus as he was at the table. And when the disciples saw this, they became indignant, and they said, Why this waste? It could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. And when Jesus learned of this, he said to them, and I love this part of this little part of the story, why are you bothering this little woman? She has done a good service for me, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And when she poured this oil on my body, she did it to prepare me for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her, and we just did that. Then one of the twelve, the one named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me to betray him into your hands? And so they set out thirty coins for him. And from that time on... Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. You know that story, right? The only one. Well, to understand what happened here, I think, we need a little history. And I hope you don't mind if I give you some of that, okay? Because if we don't have that history, the whole story of betrayal really doesn't make a lot of sense. So let's look at the history for just a few moments, all right? Now, the Jewish religion at that time had a high priest, okay? He came from the line of Aaron, which was Moses' brother. That is what God ordained. Every high priest, every priest, every high priest had to come from the family tree of Aaron, okay? 
And the high priest was the spiritual and really political leader of Israel for hundreds of years. He was the spiritual leader in the temple in Jerusalem. He was chosen, as I said, from the descendants of Aaron and the high priest of Israel. He served for life, sort of like the pope in the Catholic faith, all right? In first century Jerusalem, however, things were a little different. The Romans had conquered Israel about a hundred years earlier. And Israel was a conquered and occupied country. And they had a government. They had a governor, but it was a puppet government. It was set up, but the Romans really ruled the roost. They were in charge. And the Romans, they appointed the high priest then. They took away the line of Aaron and said, we'll take care of this. Don't worry about it. And so they appointed every high priest. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be, but the Jews really had no choice. So the Romans, they went through high priests quickly. Then some, some nations go through presidents or leaders, just one after another. And during the 104 years from 37 B.C. to A.D. 7, there were 28 high priests. They averaged less than four years in office. Obviously, when the Romans were displeased with the high priest, they just chucked him and got another one put in his place here. Okay? Joseph Caiaphas, we read about him a moment ago, Caiaphas. He served as high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36, a total of 18 consecutive years. Evidently, he was good hopefully at the spiritual part, but evidently he was good politically too. He knew how to play the game. He knew how to keep the Romans happy to last so long. So how did he do that? How do you think he was able to do that, huh? Well, the Romans, above all things, they did not tolerate civil disorder. Pax Romana, the Roman peace was a big deal for them, okay? And Jerusalem... There was no more explosive time than the annual Passover feast. Jews came from all across the empire to celebrate their high holy days, especially Passover. Matter of fact, it was a law, the Jewish law, that said every male is required to attend at least one Passover during his lifetime. So it doesn't matter if it was a Jew in, in France or wherever, he was to come to Jerusalem at once during his life and celebrate the Passover. Many of them were political and religious zealots. That is, they belonged to a political party that wanted to undermine and, and overthrow the Romans, all right? They were looking for a Messiah, a leader, a political leader, a military leader to lead them against the Roman rulers. Now, I don't know the population really of Jerusalem in the first century, but somewhere I read it was probably around 50,000 people. That was an average uh uh, population figure, okay? That's a little less than the city limits, those who live in the city limits of Greenville, uh, of a population of 68,000. At Passover, every year, the population absolutely expanded for about a week. There was a Jewish historian named Josephus, and we have his history that he wrote about the, the Jewish people, okay? He wrote in one segment that the Roman governor, Cestius, felt that the emperor Nero just didn't understand how 
difficult and dangerous the Jews were. And we know from history that of all the nations that Rome conquered, there, were, there was not any more troublesome nation than Israel. They were a thorn in their side continuously. So Celsius wrote Nero to describe the Passover festival. And in the letter, he explained that at the Passover, the Jews would sacrifice, and this was their law too, one lamb for every 10 people to be sacrificed. One lamb for every 10 people. So he ordered the high priest one year, the count, to count the number of, of lambs that were slaughtered at the, high, at, the, at the Passover festival here. And the total that they came out with when it was over was 256,500 sheep. Figure that. One sheep for every two, 10 people. How does that figure up? It says probably for that year there were 2 million 565,000 people in Jerusalem and in the Byron's roundabout. That's a gob of people, you know. Can you imagine with them coming and that amount of people coming and staying in Greenville for about a week? 265 million, that's half of the population of the state of South Carolina. And if they were all to come to Greenville and stay for a week... I can't imagine the logistics of food and lodging and sanitation. Can you imagine for so many people in such a small area? But the Roman governor, he was more concerned about keeping the peace than he was about all those other things. It would take the entire Roman army almost to control this mob if it was to get out of hand. So that helps us to get into the thinking of Caiaphas, the high priest, as he was responsible to keep that peace during Passover. But this year that we're talking about, the problem was Jesus. People were flocking to Jesus. There were hundreds following Jesus. Wherever he stopped to preach and to do miracles, thousands would come. Everyone was talking about him. He attracted and he persuaded large crowds with his sermons. People, many of the people said, yeah, he's the Messiah. He's the promised Savior. And all the ingredients were in place for a riot and an insurrection that year. So what was the solution to this problem? Hmm? What would you think the solution would be if you lived there and if you were the high priest of Israel? I believe the solution was a preventative strike against Jesus before the trouble began. It would have to be, done, be done soon as well. It would have to be done fast. It would have to be done secretly because the risk of capturing and arresting Jesus during the daylight hours was that the crowds might come to his rescue. So how did that include Judas? We read just a moment ago. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priest. And he asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you, if I betray him to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas looked for an opportunity to betray him. 
Don't you think Judas knew Jesus pretty well? He'd been a member of the band, the disciples of, of Jesus for three, three and a half years. He knew Jesus where he would be when he came to Jerusalem. He knew that uh, he, he could take the authorities to find him in that private place under a cover of darkness. And once he was arrested in the authorities, they could quickly dispose of Jesus and head off all the potential problems that were rising. And that's what happened. It's exactly what happened. Judas listened carefully to Jesus' plans. They'd been to Jerusalem before, and I think it was sort of a common thing for Jesus and his disciples to to camp out in the the Garden of Gethsemane uh, on the Mount of Olives. For the right price, Judas then led a small army straight to Jesus when he was arrested that Thursday night and taken to trial. And quick trials led to a hasty crucifixion. And crucifixion led to a rapid death. And Jesus of Nazareth was no longer a threat. He was disposed of. Peace was preserved and Caiaphas could keep his position. He could keep his job as high priest. So the story of what Jesus did, Judas did is well known to many of us. But the reason why he did it, why he did it, how did that get in his heart and why did he fulfill that? has never been fully answered for any of us. So let me give you three possible explanations of why Judas may may have done this. Number one, Judas could have sold Jesus for the money, the 30 pieces of silver. We know he was paid that. But you know what? That's only equivalent to like $20 in our money today. He sold Jesus out for $20. It's hard to imagine anyone doing something so treacherous for such little profit. Matthew did something real strange. Did you notice it in that story? We began reading about Jesus predicting he was going to be crucified. Then it talked about Caiaphas and the priest and how they're plotting to get rid of him, how they felt like they had to get rid of him. And then there's this story. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. The jar itself, alabaster, it was very expensive as well. And she broke open the bottle, we read in another uh, gospel, and she poured the perfume on the head of Jesus as he was reclining at the table. And that's how they ate then. They reclined on pillows and they would reach out with their fingers to get the food. Why did Jesus interrupt this story about the high priest and and Judas with the perfume story? I think he wanted you and I to realize something here, okay? He wanted us to see the sharp contrast between those who love Jesus and those who didn't. And plus we see here how to worship. I love this story. We read elsewhere the woman was just weeping and she poured the oil that scented oil on on the head of Jesus. She broke that expensive jar so she could pour it on him. She directed everything she was doing to Jesus. 
She was directing it to God. And she was absolutely wild, wildly extravagant with what she did. And all of what she was doing for Jesus was born out of her gratitude and love for him. It just reflected the the humility in her heart toward Jesus. And I guarantee you this, all that she did, it left God honored and glorified. You see, she wanted to give something to Jesus. Judas wanted to get something out of Jesus. Matthew wanted us to see ourselves in this story here. And I guess to ask ourselves, are we more about generosity or greed when it comes to Jesus Christ. And what I mean is sort of like this, like when we pray, are our prayers all about us, about what we want, what we got to have, what we need in desperation, or do we ever take the time just to worship him, just to praise him, to thank him, to glorify him. God is not saying we shouldn't ask for everything we want. Instead, we're to ask him for everything we need. I still find it hard to believe Judas could could betray Jesus Jesus for so little cash. And although saying that, it, it, it applies... Well, Foster, you saying that it would have been all right if he got a hundred dollars, a thousand, ten thousand dollars for him. But the truth is, there's no price, no prices enough to sell out the Lord Jesus. Do you think? Jesus must mean more to us than any amount of money. There's no place for greed in our faith. There's no place for greed in the thinking of a true disciple of Jesus. John filled in a blank here in this story in Matthew with what he related in John 12. The woman was anointing Jesus. And he says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. And John said, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. He was the keeper of the money bag. He was the treasurer of the group. And he used to help himself to the money in the bag that was put into it. So maybe Jesus did it for the money. Secondly, maybe he had a better explanation. And that was politics. He had a political reason for it. Judas may well have been a a member of that movement I told you about a little while ago called the Zealots, a group that their one aim was to overthrow Rome and kick them out of Israel here. The Romans called them terrorists. The Jews called them patriots. Maybe when Judas joined Jesus, he saw the potential for a political revolution. This is the guy. At last, there's a real Messiah who will gather the masses. He'll organize an army and and run the Romans out of Israel. And if he organized and mustered a huge Jewish army, Jesus would, he could feed them all with just a, a few loaves of bread and a few fishes and continuously feed them. And if they were wounded, he would heal them. And even if they were killed, he'd raise them back to life to fight another day. 
But too much time passed for Judas, perhaps. After three years, he was increasingly disappointed and disillusioned with with the political agenda that Jesus had, which was none. Jesus was getting sidetracked with all these spiritual priorities now. And matter of fact, he continuously talked about going to Jerusalem and, and, and dying. He sounded suicidal. Maybe it was time for Judas to quit on Jesus, cut his losses, and move on to someone else who would be the Messiah. And Judas wouldn't be the first or the last to abandon the leader because things didn't go his way. Sometimes, even today, the most loyal and faithful followers will turn into the most severe critics and outright enemies. Ask any pastor that. It was time for Judas to dump this Jesus. It's time to move on because he never lived up to his political potential. And betrayal was a good way to end that relationship. And then there's a third reason, maybe why he betrayed him. Maybe it was all just a mistake, a huge mistake, a terrible misunderstanding. Perhaps Judas actually thought he was doing a good thing with this. To Judas, it may have seemed strange that Jesus didn't see his own political potential here. Maybe Judas could do something for Jesus to realize the hidden power that he had. He could shove Jesus into a confrontation with the religious and the military and the political authorities. And if they tried to arrest Jesus, then Jesus would be forced to act. He would use all that supernatural power that he had. He would declare himself Messiah. He would rally the people and overthrow the Romans. And there would not be a better time for him to do this than during Passover when all the Jews, two million Jews, were in Jerusalem. All he needed was just a little push from Judas. And I'm thinking, could he really be that foolish to think that? Did Judas really think that he was smarter than Jesus Christ? Well, he wouldn't have been the first to think that, and certainly not the last, to try to push Judas into a political action that Jesus didn't want. So in the final analysis, there's three reasons perhaps he did it. Maybe there's one correct, maybe none of them are. Because we'll never fully know why he betrayed Jesus, but what we know for sure is he did. Jesus sold out the Son of God, the Savior of the world, his friend. The betrayal led to the trial, the trial led to the cross, and the cross led to the grave. And then Judas was sorry for what he'd done. He wanted to go back and undo the treachery he had done. Judas returned to the religious leaders and he gave back the 30 coins but it was too little, too late. Filled with remorse, he went to a tree and hung himself. Talk about a tragedy. And on the day that the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead in the greatest miracle of all eternity, Judas was buried in a pauper's grave outside Jerusalem. And because of his unbelief in Jesus Christ, he never saw Easter. He was so near and yet so far. 
Well, how about us? Could that be our story? You know, whenever I read about characters in the Bible, a lot of times I try to put myself in their sandals, you know, uh, to try to identify with them. Their, Their dreams, their sins, their successes, their failures. I'm David with a slingshot going up against a big guy named Goliath. I'm Paul preaching to the Gentiles. I'm Peter when I'm impulsive and I act too quickly. I'm Mary. I am thrilled with the birth of Jesus, but heartbroken with his suffering and his death. But I just don't want to identify with Judas. He's too greedy. He's too selfish. He's too evil. I don't want to have anything to do with him. It's too frightening to even imagine what it would be like to turn against the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? I do wonder, though, how Judas got there, from being one of his disciples to the worst enemy of Jesus. There's a business concept called tipping point, and the concept is pretty simple. It teaches that if you take very small steps in the same direction, eventually you will reach a point where everything changes. And we have expressions for that today, like the straw that broke the camel's back or the frog in the pot. You put a frog in a pot of water and you slowly turn the heat up degree by degree by degree and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. The frog doesn't notice till finally he's boiled to death, okay? Maybe that's what happened to Judas. A little unbelief was added every day until a one-time disciple became an all-time traitor. Seventy years ago, there were two popular fast-rising Christian evangelists on the scene in North America. One was named Billy Graham, and another was named Charles Templeton, and they were very good friends. They were preaching in rallies all across the United States. Graham remained faithful to Jesus to his dying day. Templeton, by contrast, abandoned his Christian beliefs, and he wrote a book, listen to this, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Lee Strobel was a journalist at that time, and he went to visit Charles Templeton. Bring the pictures of him up. The one on the left is him preaching back in the day, and the other is toward the end of his life. He lived to be 82 years old. He went to visit Charles Templeton. He was in failing health. He interviewed him, and at one point, he was able to ask him about Jesus. And this is how Charles Templeton answered Jesus was the greatest human being who had ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was absolutely the wisest person I've ever encountered in my life and in my readings. He's the most important thing in my life. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. He is the most important human being who has ever existed. And if I may put it this way, I miss him. 
I miss him. And then he said, that's enough of that. I don't want to ever miss Jesus, do you? Hmm? I don't want to ever be a Judas. I don't ever want to be a Templeton. I want to end like a pastor of the first century by the name of Polycarp who was arrested by the Romans and tied to a stake and was going to be martyred and burned to death if he didn't recant his faith and turn and renounce Jesus. And this is what he said. Eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. Has Jesus ever done you any wrong? I have one word to end with today. Believe. Do what Judas didn't do. Believe in Jesus. Don't ever consider the possibility of quitting the race until it's over. Don't ever think of quitting, period. Believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe he's the son of God, God himself in human flesh who came to to pay the penalty and take God's wrath for our sins, who died and yet death couldn't hold him. He walked out of the grave. Believe in him. And hold on to that belief with everything you have. Don't miss him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the day. I thank you for what we could learn from all the characters in the Bible. I thank you for what we could learn from Judas. And I'm glad this sermon's over about him. I know there's something to learn, but golly, how terrible, how tragic, how evil. So, Father, I thank you that we place, each and every one of us here, placed our faith in the Lord Jesus. And that, Father, we will live in obedience to you. And we'll love you with everything we have. I pray we'll worship you when we pray and when we gather. I pray you'll be the most important person in our lives, as you said you should be. And that, Father, all that we have and all that we are will come under your lordship. I pray today, surely not everyone here is, can say that, but I pray they can. And I pray a decision will be made to do that in their lives even now as we sing. So bless this time, a time of decision, a time of commitment, a time of love, of drawing near to you. In your holy, risen, and eternal name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.